Hello and welcome to The Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. G'day, everybody, and welcome to The Coaching Podcast. I am super excited to interview somebody I haven't spoken to in over 20 years, Dr. Andrea Firth, and she is, besides just a beautiful human that once drove me to Heathrow Airport, (laughs) where (laughs) we were stuck in traffic and I almost missed my flight, I'll never forget that moment, but we made it, and we've made it here again today. We've reconnected. Now, Andrea is a sport and exercise psychologist, and she's also a coaching psychologist and counsellor. She works with elite, sub-elite recreational athletes and also works with performing artists and small to medium-sized businesses, um, lectures in a number of areas, researchers in a number of areas, loves to talk about performance enhancement. I do too. Andrea, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Emma. Thanks for having me. The first question, the veggie mic question, everyone can probably tell with that UK accent. I'm not sure that she's going to be a fan. What's your take on Vegemite? Love Vegemite. Prefer oh. it to Marmite, actually. <laughs> oh, she prefers it to Marmite. There you go. Well, we did originally meet at Tennis Australia uh, many, many years ago. So uh, you're not only a lover of Vegemite, lover of Australia. Uh, what a great way to kick it off with your best coaching moment and what was a lesson can you think of something the best coaching moment I think has been when you know you get it's not just one moment it's several moments when you get a click I always think that coaching is like trying to turn on a light switch in someone's head it's trying to get them to see a way forward but coming up with it almost themselves rather than you just telling them and it's a really pleasurable moment when that switch clicks and and they they get it and they they know what to do and they know the way forward Mm. how do you do that I ask Socratic questions I try to get them to come up with their own answers I really do honestly feel that most people know the answers but they don't know that they know it so Mm. my job is to get them to unveil their knowledge Mm, and if they do get stuck then you can help them out a bit but I think that should be your very last last uh, tool in the box you've got a whole load of other tools that you should be using ahead of of being directive for me there was a moment in my career where I understood exactly what you just said but it took me a while so in chapter one I didn't really understand true meaning of what you just said how did it go for you like was it at university you were told like because you studied exercise psychology you know what when did your I I didn't study exercise psychology I studied uh, straight psychology and then I studied uh coaching but not coaching psychology coaching at master's level and with with psychology for me I don't know I I I I can't honestly say that there was one moment. I think it was like a accumulation of things. And I think when you first start out doing what we do, it's very tempting to want to tell people what to do because that's how we are trained. You know, you were the tennis coach. 
I wasn't as big a tennis coach as you, but I was a tennis coach as well. And, you know, you just spend your time telling people, you know, this is how you hit the ball. This is how you move. You know, it's, it's easy and people pay you to do that. And then when you teach, uh, when you lecture, you're telling students again. So when you go into any form of psychology and applied psychology, I think the default mode is to tell people the answers, but it's never as effective. And you will make a load of mistakes early on until you figure out, actually, it may seem like it's quicker now, but in the long term, it's actually a much slower process. So it's actually better to take a little bit longer to get there and have a better result than to feel as if you're fixing the problem straight away, but actually the outcome's not so great. Yeah, and I think that also breeds accountability. Uh, I love the word stickability. And when somebody does come up with their solution, they own it versus it's, you know, same thing with parenting, you know, make your bed, make your bed, make your bed. Kid never makes their bed. (laughs) Exactly. If you can incentivize them to want to make their bed, (laughs) you might get a different outcome. All right. What about on the flip side? I also think that's that's an important point that you just made there that, you know, you tell your kid to make the bed, make the bed. You tell your athletes, do this, do this, do this. But you, I think, has as a coach, have to be comfortable with the fact that the client might not do it. It might take an age to get there. And the temptation, of course, is because we're in a very pressurized business. Sport is a very pressurized business. You need to have results now. And it's about resisting that pressure and then going with what's best for your client. Yeah, fantastic. All right, what about on the flip side? Can you think of a moment that didn't go well and what was the lesson? Uh, I sometimes incorporate a thing called Acceptance Commitment Therapy Act in my sessions. And one of the things on that is that you do a change point. So you identify all the things that are keeping you stuck in a certain type of behavior. And then you investigate why you're being stuck. So I had this client who seemed to be stuck for what well, seemed like an age, but it probably was only about four weeks or so, but he was stuck. He wasn't making the progress that we wanted him to be making. And so it's quite a challenging thing to do the change point. And so I challenged him and he seemed okay. And then he just canceled the next two sessions. I was like, oh, I I was too challenging, perhaps. It was too hard for him. And he now has disappeared on me. And then he came back after, on on the third week, he came back. And I I said to him, you know, you disappeared for a while. (laughs) You know, was it because you felt it was too challenging? And he said, no, but it made him think, made him think. And he needed to have that time to think. So it wasn't because it was too challenging, but that was a very tricky moment because Nobody likes to have a client just disappear on them. So the lesson in that, and so often I think we forget about this, is just giving somebody the space and giving them time to, to process, to think. And that's great that he came back so you were able to get that feedback as well because as a coach it is a fine balance between how hard do we go, how much, how many questions do we ask, you know, those laser questions that really cut through to the heart of 
maybe somebody having to look in a mirror and having a deep, a deeper uh, reflection. So, and there is a difference, isn't there, between there is you know, athletes who are are very used to, you know, a more direct and harder way of being coached than members of the general public who perhaps need a much softer approach. Mm. And I, I do find that's a difference. Like the athletes want more direct, want like the harder approach, whereas people who are not athletes, they can't, they don't really want that. They want a much softer touch. Yeah. Yep. I, I would agree with that. I still think sometimes we have conditioned athletes mm. in the way we mentioned it already around with this approach of direct and tell, then they, yeah. they get used to that and then they feel like that's what they need. Whereas especially in the sports of tennis, for example, when you're out there on the court all alone, I mean, now that we've got coaching being allowed, which which is a good thing because everyone was doing it anyway, but sometimes even listening to what the coaches are saying, it's it's totally direct and tell. I mean, yes, you haven't got long when your athletes using the towel and they're right there. Uh, for me, the one of the favorite my favorite things about our great sport of tennis is just the the problem solving that takes place for the individual, and the more you are coached in a way to problem solve on your own, the more you're going to be able to find the answers. You're not going to be looking for the coach, like, give me the magic answer. I, I need you to tell me, you know, what if your coach isn't there? Like, like 99% of us who do play tennis, we don't have the, we can't afford to pay the coach to be there every single match. Exactly. Uh, mm, but so. and tennis is quite unique because you spend a lot of time having to think for yourself and, you know, that, you know, you have to problem solve in the moment, which is most athletes have to do that. But certainly within uh, other sports, team sports, there is a tendency to almost drill them like they're in the army. And then that doesn't work because when the unexpected happens, they don't know what to do. <laughs> you know? Totally. And they're the ones on the pitch or on mm. the field or where, wherever their sporting arena is and they need to be able to problem solve. So I think it's really important to teach people to problem solve mm. and to be solution focused. I think a lot of people yep. just get stuck on that problem and can't see the wood for the trees. And I spend a lot of my time trying to get them to go beyond the problem to find a solution and not to and not to just take it at face value as well. You know, a lot of people present a problem and they think, that's it because it's at face value. But actually, if you delve deeper, the problem's deeper than that. And actually solving the initial thing isn't isn't the thing that's going to work. It's like going beyond that mm. and thinking, right, what is behind this? Let's let's solve that. Very much related to uh, a conference that I went to this week. The keynote speaker was really talking about your deep why. So, and, you know, she uses the analogy of, of the onion. And of course I'm a big Shrek fan, you know, ogres <laughs> are just like onions. We have lots of, lots of layers uh, like humans do. And I think when you peel back and peel back and peel back and, you know, ask yourself five why questions as it relates to being solution focused as well uh, and, and discovering your deep why helps us get out of bed in the morning too. Yes. Mm, and recognizing, 
and labeling your emotions. Mm. You know, what am I feeling right now? And mm -hmm. why am I feeling this? And is this re is this feeling real? You know, where is your default? The, the behavior that you always go back to? And is it my default telling me this information or is it real? And it's about questioning that. Fantastic. Great tips already for our coaches out there to uh, add to their coaching toolkit as well. So thank you. Off to a great start, Andrea. What about a sliding doors moment in your life? <laughs> I, I'm going to sort of, it's going to be a little bit um, like sucking up, I guess. But um, it was when I went to tennis Australia, to be honest. Mm. Um and that's the thing that maybe kick-started my psychology practice. And, and I was able to sort of like use that experience and build upon that experience. And, you know, high-level, working with really high-level athletes, albeit they were young. Um, but and, and just being around the coaches there and being in that really professional environment, that was the moment I think that I kind of felt this was going to work out for me. Mm. And how did, how did you get that opportunity? It was bizarre. It was through a, a mutual contact of both of us called Pete. And um, he invited me over and uh, he didn't really know me much. It's just that I contacted him out of the blue and he must've liked what I had to say. <laughs> and, um, or he was impressed that I reached out to him. I don't know. Um, but then he invited me over and, you know, he, he changed my life really. Mm. So, well, he's definitely had a massive influence on my life as well. So shout out to Pete McCraw, uh, who yeah. of course features in what makes a great coach as well. And, uh, yeah, I love that Australia is part of your sliding doors story. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> Everyone out there, if you haven't been to Australia, you need to get there. Such a cool place, uh, to, even just watch high performance sport as well and learn from learn from the great coaches, both in business and in sport, actually. All right. What about uh our next question, our guiding question in one to a maximum of three words? What do you think makes a great coach? The ability to listen and be still. That's more than three words, but <laughs> <laughs> be still and listen. There you go. Sometimes it's very easy, isn't it, for us to be very busy and really trying super hard and high energy and lots of effort, and we're not actually being still to see what is actually, we're so entrenched in our behaviours that we're not being still and seeing actually what is the true picture here, what is needed, what do I have to say everything that I'm saying, or could I listen a little bit more? How does a coach work on being still? Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just stop talking. Um, I mean, obviously you have to talk if you're a coach. I'm not saying stop talking altogether, but maybe just cut it back a little bit and see what it is you I mean, I've seen coaches who are even incredibly good coaches but they're not working with what the player knows already. They're so busy telling the player what to do and telling the player how to be that they haven't really recognized what the player has already taken on board. And therefore, they're losing that ability to progress 
the situation faster than it would be doing it their way. Um, uh, I mean, I've worked even, um, I'm not going to mention any club names or anything, but even in, in football, I've worked with, in, with several coaches and um, in more than one team. And I think the best coaches are the ones who actually don't talk as much mm. and give very clear instructions. They believe in their ability to get their point across. And I think the ones who don't trust that they've said it right or don't trust the athlete's ability to grasp what they're saying over talk and then the message gets lost and that actually all it does is the player stops listening because they know it's going to be repeated at some point and actually I can afford not to pay a hundred percent because it is going to be repeated and so I think that's a that's a unique thing mm, I agree. there is a thing called relationship inferred self-efficacy it's called rise and what that is saying is do i have belief in my self-efficacy to do what's best for the other person to do what's best for the athlete and do i believe in the athlete's ability to grasp what needs to be done do I believe in their ability? And then the twist is, does the athlete not only believe in their ability, but believe in me? So that's relationship inferred self-efficacy where you are, you know, how well do you believe in your own and each other's self-efficacy and ability to do what's necessary? And I think there's not a lot of that going on sometimes. Sometimes we don't have the confidence that our client will perform. <laughs> yep. And so therefore we fill the space with words and action that doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, belief, of course, is practice too in what makes a great coach. So if all the 520 great coaches out there, um, pract practice too in the in the in my book is belief. So yes. believing in the, you know, as you said, the coaching relationship both ways is so important, isn't it? All right. Uh, let's go to our final question where we ask you to ask us a question. So what's that one question that you love to ask of others? What is your philosophy when you're working with your client? Like what about if a coach is listening to that question and they're saying, okay, I've got some ideas around that, but how do I really conti like continue to develop a really sound coaching philosophy? What advice do you have for that coach? Well, I teach people how to get their personal philosophy, their practice philosophy. We start with really delving deep into their own values. What are your values? What are your beliefs? And being very honest about that, because then once you've got that, you'll you'll be able to build a philosophy that's rock solid. Hmm. And can you have a philosophy when you're just starting out as a coach, or do you think it's something that evolves over time? I think it's both. I think you can have a basic 
initial philosophy. So your philosophy might be, I want to educate people, or I want them to be their best or whatever. But then your first attempt at a philosophy will not be your final attempt because as you grow, your philosophy matures and uh, then you'll have a philosophy and once it's rock solid, it doesn't change too much. It might, you might tweak, you might reconsider, but your philosophy will, will be based on your values and who you are as a person. And it's different for everyone. Mm. And I don't think it's worth comparing your philosophy to somebody else's. You can learn from other people's philosophy, but I don't think you need to say, oh, theirs is great and mine is not so great. You know, it is who you are and be true to yourself. I want to go down the path of positive psychology. First question, what is positive psychology? Positive psychology is using people's strengths um, and it's a movement away from what's wrong to what's right. So what is right? What do you do that is right? What What is good about you and what you do? And how can we use that to help improve you and um, first, firstly improve your mental well-being and improve your performance? All right. So now let's say you've got an older manager who is looking after somebody, you know, this younger Gen Z even, who they feel they're just not resilient anymore. These young people, they just, as soon as things get too hard, because we're focusing all on this positive, on the strengths, on what's going right, that the minute something goes wrong, they either quit or they they check out or cancel culture. What advice have you got for that manager? Well, I, I'm going to go in, in a different way to that question, if you don't mind. And that is that there is this evangelical belief in positive psychology that if if you're not doing it, it's because there's something wrong with you and you're not doing it right. But actually, there are times when actually it's very important not to be positive. It's necessary and would be the right thing to be. So I first I would question whether actually is this situation a positive psychology situation or is it actually a situation where it, it's not reasonable or possible to be positive? So that I'd examine that first. And then I would find ways to, to problem solve the problem and as, as fast and as, and as smoothly as possible, get it onto that identifying, okay, what strengths do you have that can help us problem solve this issue to get the work done, okay? Um, so maybe you have, instead of saying, well, your time management is rubbish. Okay, so let's identify times when your time management was good and why was it good in those situations and can we transfer those situations to this current situation? And so there are always ways where you can use the person's strength, but it's it's okay for them to have their moment of, uh, I don't, I don't like this. I, I just feel as if I want to check out as long as they don't actually check out and just have that moment and identify why it is they feel that way. We can then work with that and then we can get them to go forward, but shutting it down and denying it is not necessarily healthy. Yeah. Great advice. Really, really like that. And you 
also showed in that example how you when you can use positive psychology, it can come in more like step three. All right, well, how can we use your strengths and where have you used it in the past? And I think that's just a great reminder as coaches because often in the sporting world, people come to us, you know, to fix something, you know, yeah. having trouble with my slice backhand, just as, you know, as an example. So we go straight into that rather than, all right, well, how can we, you know, build your inside out forehand and hit less backhands, for example, just giving again a pure tennis example, but the same is in the workplace, you know, where are times where you have stepped up in, in, uh, in your meetings and brought out the best in people. So thank you for sharing that. So goal setting, I mean, do you think it's changed or is it still that's, you know, the smart principle of goal setting, right? Is it timely, realistic and measurable, et cetera, et cetera? Can we do goal setting better? I actually think um, it's quite a nice acronym and it's simple so people like it. And, and if it's simple and people can identify with it, then that's good. I do think it's overdone myself. <laughs> um, but when I work with my athletes, I use a different kind of goal setting. I knew which you is still <laughs> take on it. Yes. <laughs> it still follows those principles of it. You know, you have to be able to measure it and blah, blah, blah. But we, I would explain to my athletes that there are three types of goals and the one is an outcome goal. So where do you want to get to? So it may be that you want to run a certain time by the end of the season, certain uh, finish a certain position, win a certain tournament, whatever it is, that's your outcome goal. But if we dwell on that outcome goal, it kind of harms performance. So we, we set it and... I, I promise you, you'll never forget it. You don't have to dwell on it because it's not something you're going to forget. And the reason we don't dwell on it is because it's not within our control. It be depends on so many other variables like the opponents, the weather. You know, so many things can affect that, whether we get that outcome goal. Then we have your performance goals, which are the things we need to do to get to the outcome. So, so these performance goals are much more in our control, but again, not 100%, because if my performance goal, to use a tennis analogy, was to keep my opponent away from the net and to sort of like make them run side to side rather than coming up and down the court, that kind of depends on the type of balls I'm given and the types of pressure that the opponent puts on me and you know, the core and all sorts of things, right? So yep. again, much more in my control, but not 100% in my control. So the goals that I want my athletes to dwell on and to have very clear in their mind are one or two, definitely no more than three, but ideally one or two process goals. And these are goals that are 100% down to them. So tennis analogy again, I can make myself move my feet. Okay, that's down to me. It doesn't really matter what the opponent does. I can move my feet, okay? I can I can think of um, my, my, um, my match routine. 
I can make myself breathe at the pace that I need to breathe to slow me down. I can monitor my arousal levels. These are things that are 100% in my control. And it's that old adage that I know that you're really very fond of because we've spoken about this a long time in the past about controlling the controllables yep. and letting go of the things that you can't control and dealing with the emotions. If you can't control it, you have to deal with the emotions of it. Mm. Otherwise, you find a solution and you problem solve. Yep. And so those are your process goals that will help you to do that. Yep. And I think what you just summarized as well is so important in the workplace. So business coaches listening, there's three easy steps right there. It's outcome, performance, process. That applies beautifully in the business world that you can take those concepts and uh, and work with your your teams on as well. So I think that's that's really important. All right, let's finish on the topic of I want to go down the road of success and humility. Can you be super successful and humble at the same time? What are your thoughts on that? I think so. Um, What does humble mean, though? I mean, it means not rubbing your opponent's face in it. It means not taking for granted the people that helped you. It means being a decent human being. And I think you can be a decent human being and being successful at the same time. The people who are perhaps not that way are the people who have very high self-esteem, but their self-esteem is very fragile. Mm. So anything that threatens their self-esteem, sorry, their self-esteem makes them act out. It's a threat. So then they become maybe not as nice as they should be. They don't want to be challenged and everything's a problem. Mm. Whereas I think if you've got really stable, high self-esteem, people can challenge you. People can question you and you're not going to take offense by that, you know, because your esteem is rock solid. And so therefore you don't assume that everybody's out to get you. And even if they are, it's okay because you're okay. Mm. Whereas when you, when your self-esteem is very unstable, you know, somebody questions you, you know, how dare you question me? Um, You know, any, anything to protect the ego. Yes. Yes. That this has come up in the last, uh, I had to ask that question (laughs) because it's just come up a lot, especially sometimes here in the States when I'm watching some of these, these sports coaches where the egos are off the dial and they're successful, but it feels like it's, it's paper thin, you know, it's success one week, but it's not necessarily success over time. I mean, it depends also on how you define success, but I just, uh, I wanted the psychologist's <laughs> opinion on that one. Uh, and you bring up a really great point around this self-esteem versus confidence. I know, you know, quite often I've had people say, oh, if only that person could be more confident. And it's almost like it's, they're gaining the confidence from the, the from the outside. What people say about them, or the you know, the, the confidence coming from external successes or influences, versus self esteem, which is obviously that more internal uh, belief about ourselves, which I think is 
really interesting, that distinction. Do you want to comment on that? So I think what you were talking about, I mean, you're right that it is self-esteem, but I think more apt would be perceived locus of control. So where we are deciding that things are within our control, they're internal to us, and they are stable. Um, people who do well have a good in, um, perceived locus of control. People who don't do so well blame outside forces. It's external to them. It's unstable. It's outside of their control. So I think it's about taking ownership of what we do and uh, not abdicating our responsibility onto something that we can't control. It, it's unstable and it's mm -hmm. external to what we can we can manage. Mm. And great champions that I've worked with have this great ability to compartmentalize as well, to help stay in that moment, in that match or in that meeting. They have a great ability just to be able to push away anything that's out of their control and stay in the, stay in the present moment, which I know that you, you're a fan of mindfulness. And I think the more that we can practice that, even if it's small, that will help us stay in the moment, stay in the, in the zone. All right. So let's finish with your top three tips for coaches out there that are curious to improve their uh, toolkit around psychology. Read as much as you can, look at YouTube channels, go to conferences, just acquire the knowledge. That would be my first tip. Mm -hmm. My second tip is you don't have to get it right first time. It's about improving. So don't beat yourself up if you make mistakes. Making a mistake is okay, depending on the type of mistake, obviously, but usually mistakes are an you know they're a chance to learn so it's okay to think right actually I should have maybe said that in a different way or and this brings me to my third one is reflect people who do well in life and are very successful reflect all the time but you've got to reflect with honesty you've got to be not overly hard on yourself because that's also not honest. It just appears to be honest, but it's not. Um, and also not thinking that you're the bee's knees when actually you you could be better. So, you know, write it down, contemplate yeah. it and reflect with honesty yeah. and with evidence to back up why you think it's that way. Mm. Well, you've certainly turned a light switch on in my head this morning uh, in many ways, as you always do and always have done over the years. Uh, may we all rise to the level of our values and beliefs so that we can achieve our outcomes, performance and process goals, focusing on our strengths. Andrea, it's been a pleasure, pleasure interviewing you today. Thank you so much for everything you do and continue to do. Uh, please check out headgame.co.uk. Uh, to learn more, plus check out the show notes. And Andrea, thank you for making me a better coach. Oh, thank you for having me, Emma. And thank you, everyone, for listening. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, a global coaching, mentoring, and U.S. college sporting scholarship placement service. 
The service helps athletes navigate the often challenging world of choosing your best college fit while maximizing sports performance. Visit www.transitioncoachforathletes.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating review on your podcast listening device. And don't forget to tell a fellow coach about the show. The ball is in your court to take action and enjoy your coaching.